0: If you can turn in your Bibles with me to um, the book of Exodus, and we'll pick up our reading. Last week we looked at the Song of Moses, chapter 15, 1 to 21. We'll pick up our reading from verse 22 of chapter 15 of Exodus. We'll pray before we read the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, quiet in our hearts as we hear from your words. We thank you for the privilege of having your revelation, your words in our own language, in words that we can understand. We thank you that it tells us of your plan of salvation. We thank you that it tells us of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the word, voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And may the Lord bless the reading. his holy and inerrant word i love to preach from the old testament you say no kidding but i do i um it's all good it's all good the new and the old but sometimes what i find is that you find nuggets in the old testament you've never seen before in preparation you can pull things out you've not seen before and we begin to open our minds and our hearts to actually see what jesus said on the road to emmaus is so really true and glorious that all the scriptures point to jesus that every page whispers his name and exodus is about the god who makes himself known that's why there's 10 plagues god who makes himself known who will be known and we see from the beginning to the end that the burden of exodus is that god would be made known that god would be made known to moses To the Israelites, to the Egyptians, to the nations, to the world. Just think back at what we saw in Exodus 3, when Moses is called to out of that burning bush, where he's on the far side of Midian, just wandering about, wondering what God is going to do with his life. And God speaks to him out of a burning bush. And that was where God gave Moses the mission to go to Egypt, to go back to his people, his adopted people. And Moses says, well, what shall I, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? Who are you? So even Moses does not yet know who God is. And then famously in Exodus 3, the Lord God replies, you shall tell them my name is The Lord, I am who I am. I am that I am. Yahweh, Jehovah. And then as you know in the story of the Exodus itself and the freedom from bondage, the deliverance from bondage in Egypt, you see over and over and over that God is really making himself known. And he's answering that question all the way through that Moses asked, who are you? What is your name? Who is this God?" And the crossing of the Red Sea answered that question. Who is this God? The crossing of the Red Sea answered that. The plagues answered that question. Who is the Lord was the question. And then Moses later on says, Who, O Lord, is like you? Because God has made himself known. And that theme will continue throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. So we start really a new section in the book of Exodus today. And another key theme emerges not just the God who makes himself known though that is still really relevant all the way through but what does it mean to follow this God the God who makes himself known what does it mean to follow this God who has made who has revealed himself to us and there's a natural break in the story of the Exodus after verse 21 some might say it makes perfect sense that a sermon series ends there but i want you to notice something really quite important just after verse 21 if you have a bible if you look at the end of verse 21 if you look really really hard i hope that you can see it after verse 21 what is there i want you to notice that after verse 21 it's verse 22. the book is not finished we're not done we're only a third of the way through. So there is a verse 22 and thereafter. We'll go through to chapter 40. So why is that so important? Why is that so key? Why did I draw attention to that? Because the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. They've crossed the Red Sea. God has worked his miracle of deliverance. And then we've had that wonderful song of Moses. So they have redemption. Redemption. They have redemption. The exodus has happened. Now what? Now what? They have the rest of their lives to live. That's what. That's what. They have the rest of their lives to live. And it's a great reminder for us. Some of us would like it better if the story ended at Exodus 15 verse 21. Because that's what we wish the Christian life was like. We're in slavery to sin, we're dead in trespasses and sin, we cry out, God sets us free, we're Christians and we're saved, and then we float up to heaven and the hallelujah chorus repeats itself over and over again, infinitum. Any of you experience that? Because it's not what happens. Because you're still here, you really are, pinch yourself, you really are still here. Regardless of the craziness in the world out there, we are still here. We're eating and breathing. I'm still here. So the rest of the story is not just celebrating that deliverance, though it is. It is also, what does it mean to follow this God who has saved us? What does it mean to follow the God who has delivered us? You could put it this way, that chapters 1 to 15 are about getting out of Egypt. And verses 16 to 15 and a half to 40 is about getting Egypt out of us. First 15 chapters about getting out of Egypt. And the rest of the book is about getting Egypt out of us. We're out of there, but it's not out of us, is it? It's not out of us. So what does it mean to follow this God who has saved us and delivered us? He is not done with you. When you became a Christian. He wants to shape you. Change you. That's the gospel. The gospel saves us but it changes us. Do you believe that? That the gospel can transform us. He can change our desires. He can change the way that we think. He changes us. That's the miracle of the gospel. He saves us but he changes us. And he wants to shape you. Change you. Teach you. Help you. Refine you and show you what it means to have him as saviour and as lord so as we begin now in exodus 15 verse 22 leading all the way to sinai in chapter 19 and then 20 and then to the rules and the statutes the tabernacle and yes the golden calf which they made out of the the gold they took with them out of uh, egypt and eventually to the glory of god filling the tabernacle at the end of the book we enter into this session this section which teaches us what does it mean to follow our God? What does he want from us? What can we expect from him? And there are three lessons that I want us to see. Now, these lessons are not always how things ought to be, but they are they are how things often are in the Christian life. They are realities, whether we like them or not. There are three things. I believe you can count on the first thing we ought to avoid but probably won't the second thing we ought to expect and the third we should hope for three realities in the Christian life we see in these few verses the first reality for us as Christians is that grumbling often follows grace grumbling often follows grace now we should avoid this but this was the reality for the Israelites and if you're honest You've lived that. Grumbling often follows grace. In verse twenty-two, Moses made Israel set out. And you want, you just wonder: Well, did they want to stay put? Did they want to stay in the glory land of the Exodus? But Moses made them set out. Maybe they felt safe there. Maybe they just wanted to bask in the glow of victory, safe by the banks of the Red Sea. Maybe just look out and just see all those dead Egyptians and be reminded of how great it was. And they always wanted to tell the story over and over and over. Maybe they just wanted to break. Maybe they wanted to go on holiday after the Exodus. But Moses says, no, it's time to go. But it wasn't Moses' decision, it was God's decision. And we'll see at the end of the book that this pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night... God appearing would lead them all throughout their wilderness journey. So they set out into the wilderness, this sparsely populated desert in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And it says in verse 22, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So it took three days, verse 24, and the people grumbled. Three days, and the people grumbled. Think of all they'd seen. Just think, just, just think of what they'd seen. They'd seen snakes from sticks. And then those snakes swallowing up other snakes. Would you, would you have forgotten that after three days? It was amazing what they'd seen. They'd seen plagues of blood. Frogs. Gnats. Flies. Livestock. Boils. Hail. Locusts. Darkness. They stood stood on the bank of the Red Sea, literally between the rock and the hard place. And God opened up the Red Sea for them and they walked through with water either side of them. The Egyptian army followed them in and the walls came down and drowned the Egyptian army. They saw that. They saw God appear, fire and cloud to lead them. They had seen wonders and it took three days to grumble. Three days from basking in grace to grumbling. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Not a bad question, fair question, but they ask it, grumbling. Listen, this is really important. It's not a sin to bring your problems to the Lord. He loves for us to cast our cares upon him. But what is a sin is when we bring them in a spirit of complaining. It's when we grumble. So Moses cries to the Lord for help, verse 24 and 25. And when Moses cries, it accomplishes more than all of the Israelites grumbling. You can imagine them grumbling, that, that low rumble. You can imagine that rumble of grumble. And you know, And it, Moses' prayer accomplished far more than that rumbling grumbling. Because there is a difference between Moses asking and the Israelites whining it gets you much further, little tip, for your, with your parents or your teacher or your professor if you say, may I have, rather than "Why? why do I not have? Little tip there. But that's what the Lord says to the people. The people have been set free after 400 years of slavery. They'd witnessed 10 miraculous plagues. They'd seen 100% of Pharaoh's best men swallowed up in the sea and it took them three days to forget all of that. Why do, we, why do we forget so quickly? Why do we move from grace to grumbling so quickly? Well, think about what was facing the Israelites. Let us not be too hard on them because we are a lot like them. We tend to grumble. If they had a map, if they had an itinerary, if they had, if they had iPhones with Hey Siri on it, they might not have complained, but they did not know. They did not know the journey. See, slavery was a known. It was a known. It was a known factor. Freedom means living by faith. And living by faith, I can assure you, is uncomfortable. Living by faith is uncomfortable. But, but slavery was a known. Was a known. But freedom is living by faith. Which is why people run back to the world. Because slavery is a We understand it. And faith is scary. Faith is scary. They did not know where they were. They did not know why they were where they were. If you know why you are where you are, you can endure much more. If you think about it. If you go to a hospital to have a baby. Uh, it's, it's fairly painful, I've been told, by my wife. But you know why you are there. You know why you are there. And you know that joy is going to be the outcome. You kind of know what is happening. You understand what is before you. But being in the hospital with unexplained chest pains is scary. So you're in hospital having a baby. You're in hospital with unexplained chest pains. There's a difference. There is a difference with the experience. Because we tend to grumble when we do not trust the one who is leading us. And we're going to find out three times in these wilderness chapters, 15, 16 and 17, the Israelites will grumble. And they never grumble directly against the Lord. They always have a go at the human representative of the divine will. They didn't trust their leaders. They grumbled against their leaders. Which is why grumbling can be such a serious sin. It, knows, it, knows, it shows we do not trust Lord, the Lord who is guiding us. And then we grumble when we do not like our circumstances. We do. They'd probably rush to this water. They are thirsty. When they came to Mara, they couldn't drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. You can just hear them in the camp water, 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 my kingdom for water. Two million, three million people and water. And can you just imagine that first person running up, you know, that first one to the pool? takes a deep, satisfying gulp. Can you imagine the look on his face? Imagine the look on his face. It's bitter. It's bitter. And we're so thirsty. We're so tired. We've been travelling forever. We've been in the car on the M6. It's been days. We've been, it's bitter. We cannot drink it. So they grumble. We do not complain, my friend, when things go our way. Have you ever noticed that? You don't often complain when things go your way. We complain when circumstances, in our opinion, conspire against us. Listen very carefully because this is important. A groan is one thing, a grumble is another. And it's really important to know the distinction. To say that my life is painful, that my life is hard, I have sad things going on, I have a diagnosis that I'm really unhappy about. I have wayward children. And am I supposed to put on a smile and pretend I'm happy all the time? I'm victorious! Am I supposed to do that when I feel anything but? The Bible is filled with people who bring their groans and even their complaints to the Lord. A groan is one thing, a grumble is another. And I think of it this way. A groan comes before the Lord with hands open. But a grumble comes before the Lord with a fist clenched. With a fist clenched. A groan comes before the Lord with a hand open. And a grumble comes before the Lord with a fist clenched. Who, why? You're ready to strike. You're ready to judge. You're ready to accuse. That is grumbling. A groan is one thing. God wants to hear it. A grumble is another. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing, not just praying that they may have clean water, but they're grumbling. And grumbling is one of those sins that we hate when we see it in other people. We hate it in other people, but we love it in ourselves. We justify it in ourselves and we really point the finger at other people. You don't like to be around grumbling people, do you? I don't. She just complained the whole time. Oh, it's such a downer. Being around them is so discouraging. You cross the other side of the road so you don't have to talk to them because it will just drag you down. It's just so weary. You don't like it when other people start complaining and groaning. But by boy, we sure excuse ourselves. I have such a hard life. I'm just venting. It's just my personality. I'm sorry. Grumbling, we excuse it in ourselves but not in others. We grumble when past provision or future promises don't have any bearing on our present pain. And all we can see is the pain today. Not the promises that have come true in the past. Not the future hope. Just the pain today. And we look at the past and say, I cannot trust God. We look at the future and say, I don't know if his promises are sure. And we come to our present pain and say, God, what are you going to do about this today? That's a grumble. They have forgotten what had happened three days ago. Three days ago. They would lost sight of all that God had promised them in the Exodus. And all they knew was that they were thirsty. And God hadn't given them cold iced water. Grumbling often follows grace. Secondly, testing often follows triumph. Grumbling follows grace, that's what to avoid. This is what to expect. We should expect that t- testing often follows triumph. Moses sent them out into the wilderness and now it was a reality. Moses had stood before Pharaoh so many times and said, let my people go. Let my people go that they may worship in the, go into the wilderness to worship the Lord our God." That was always part of Moses' plea. Not just to set them free, but set them free to worship. Sometimes we only tell the story of the exodus, as slave people getting free. But it wasn't just freedom from oppression, it was freedom to worship. That they might go into the wilderness and meet the Lord their God. And the first thing he does in the wilderness is teach them something about trust. Victory, singing, test. That's how it goes. Crossing the Red Sea, victory. Singing the song of Moses. And then a test. It's the first time in Exodus, the second time since Genesis 22, that God directly, explicitly (coughs) tests someone. We read it at the end of the chapter. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Do not misunderstand what this is about. There he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your helper." Do not misunderstand this, because this is so key. These were requirements for a saved people. Like the book of James in the New Testament, not requirements for a people to be saved. This is key to understand in the whole book of Exodus when we get into the law and the Ten Commandments. The law and the Ten Commandments are not rules and laws so we might be saved. They might be saved because they've already been saved. They were saved when they crossed the Red Sea. God does not say, you're crying out, you're slaves in Egypt, I have Ten Commandments for you and if you pass the test, then I will come and set you free. No. He's heard them. He's come. He's delivered them. They are saved. And as a saved people, he says, now I have a test. This is about fellowship with God. This is about blessing. This is not justification. Test means you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. Israel. He's not promising when he says, I will be your healer at the end of verse 26. He's not saying that no one will ever get sick. If anyone says to you, if you do this, you'll never get sick, run a million miles away the other direction. There's no such thing as the prosperity gospel. He's not saying that no one will ever get sick, no one will ever die. Show me somebody who's over 150 years old. Just show me or you'll have universal health and ease. But what he's saying is that you will not meet the same plagues that come upon Egypt. It is the promise he'll make in Deuteronomy 7, the opposite of what he threatens in Deuteronomy 28, when he threatens curses on the people for disobedience. We read that this morning. It makes sense when you think about it. What was the very first plague to come to Egypt? Water. They couldn't drink the water. First plague. It was more than that because the Nile was deity to them. But the first plague, they didn't have water to drink. What is the first thing that happens to Israel when they grumble? Why they grumble? They don't have water. The Lord has a test here. It is a test specifically. What happens with Egypt? They have water they cannot drink. And God puts it in a stick, the staff that will change it back. And what happens with Israel? They get a log. The same thing. A log is thrown in. And God is deliberately drawing a very deliberate parallel with Egypt and Israel. And he's trying to teach them. Do you want to be like Egypt? Is that what you want? Do you want me to discipline you like Egypt? He's testing them. The liberty that they've experienced is never meant to lead to license. The Israelites need to realise that God was not some kind of personal genie. He was not a talisman to wear around the neck or a rabbit's foot to keep in the pocket. God being for you does not make God indifferent to your sin. They may have the mistaken notion that we just go from the Red Sea to Canaan. Some of us think that. Some of us think that. That we go from grace to glory, nothing in between. There were no shortcuts for the israelites and rarely are there any shortcuts for us they had to travel through the wilderness and every single one of us will have to travel through the wilderness to get to the promised land we will and along that path god will test us and god will teach us will we keep singing 15 to 1 to 21 is full of singing singing people Will you sing when the triumph turns to testing? That's what he wants to see because they were full of song when the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians. Aaron was singing, Miriam was singing, Moses was singing, but will they keep singing when the triumph turns to testing? Will you keep singing when the triumph turns to testing? Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross, of grief or pain. Leave it to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Can you sing that? Or can you sing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Or Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shalt be. This is the test for the Israelites. Will you listen? Will you do? Will you give ear? Will you keep my commandments? This is what he says in verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes four verbs there listen do give ear keep if you remember in chapter two at the end of chapter two there were four other verbs before god had done anything that they could see and the israelites were crying out for deliverance it says their cries went to god and at the end of chapter two and god heard their groaning and god remembered his covenant with abraham with isaac and with jacob And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So way back in chapter 2, when it looked for all the worlds of the Israelites, that God was not there and the world was dark and empty and silent. They were suffering for four centuries as slaves. And chapter 2 ended with four powerful verbs. God remembered, God saw, God heard and God knew. And he had not done anything at that point. They did not even know. That was Moses telling us what God knew. But they did not know. And that may be where you are at at this point in your life. With the pain that you have. With the trial that you're currently going through. It doesn't, hasn't been 400 years, but it may seem like that. When you're alone or scared. Depressed. Anxious. Trying to make ends meet, living in a loveless marriage. Can you trust that God remembers, that God hears, that God sees, and God knows? God knows. That is God's part. And he says to the Israelites here, was I not true to my words? Was I not true to my promises? Now this is a test for you. Will you listen? Will you do it? Will you give ear? And will you keep my commandments? It's God's way of saying, I heard you, do you hear me? I heard your cries, you're delivered. Will you listen to me now? Even when you do not know where you're going, or where you are, or when you'll get there. Do you feel like that sometimes? That You don't even know where you are. You don't know where, where, when you're going. Testing follows triumph. Grumbling follows grace. And finally, Elim follows Mara. Isn't that beautiful? Elim follows Mara. The first point is what to avoid. We should avoid that. We often don't. The second point is what to expect. But the third point is our hope. That Elim follows Mara. Elim eventually follows Mara. You see, Mara means bitter. God was gracious with a whole bunch of folks who did not deserve it. So he gave them on the other side of Mara, this place of palms, this place of spring, this place called Elim. You know, there are hospitals called Elim. Schools have been called Elim. Churches have been called Elim. Mission organisations have been called Elim because it's a place of rest it's a place of healing it's a place of plenty it's a place of prosperity and there are 12 worlds one for each of the 12 tribes of israel there are 70 70 trees representative of the 70 elders of israel and god is gracious god is gracious god is good to us to give us seasons of prosperity as well as seasons of adversity. And whichever one you're in right now, whichever one you're in right now, whether you're in Mara or whether you're in Elim, God has something that He wants to teach you right now. God has a plan for you, He has a plan for you to learn. Now, we would all want to sign up for Elim. We all want to sign up for Elim. We want those lessons in prosperity. We can take it. But God leaves us leads us to Mara, He leads us through seasons of adversity. And he has so much to teach us in those lessons. So after this great success, after the greatest victory of all, he sends Mara. And after Mara, he sent Elim. Isn't God good? We need both. We need both. One to sanctify us. One to make life sanctifying, that's Mara. And the other to make life sweet, that's Elim. You see, if life was only ever Mara, you could hardly endure. So we hope that there's Elim coming. But if life was only Elim, camped down with springs and palm trees, deck chairs, sunglasses, the last three weeks, we all know the rain is coming, don't we? It's not going to stay like this, I'm afraid. But we've had a wonderful holiday. We wouldn't realized we had to trust and god wouldn't be able to teach us all the things we need to learn so when you're at mara and some of you think you're at mara today do not forget that god is on your side that god has not forgotten you sometimes the worst part of suffering is hopelessness the human spirit is very resilient and we can endure all kinds of pain and anguish if we have the hope that something will get better. And we have an eternal hope, my friend, if you're a Christian. That whatever this world throws against us, whatever the enemy can assail us with, we have a hope that it will all get better. We have a hope that someone is listening. And we have a hope that God really cares. When life is at its bottom, when we're convinced that no one can hear me, no one understands No one cares. Nothing will ever change. Nothing will ever get better. You get into a deep, dark place. You must believe that God has something better for you. You must believe that Elim follows Mara. Hopefully soon, but always eventually. Hopefully soon, but always eventually. And we so clearly see from the rest of the Bible that there's far more important water than the H2O that they found at Ely. Because the bitterness that ensnares us is not a bitter drink, but the bitterness of sin, of unforgiveness, of resentment, of self-pride. Hebrews 12 verse 15, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many Become defiled. Oh, my friend, do not let a root of bitterness spring up in you. Hebrews is warning us do not be the kind of person who always lives in Mara and never knows what it's like to get to Eden. Because you're ensnared by a root of bitterness. You're bitter towards everybody, you're angry with everybody, you're bitter towards your wife, you're bitter towards your parents. Your bitterness for your own failures and sins, and you never get out of that downward spiral of recrimination. And you think that you're paying for your sins by being a miserable, oh, whatever, which not only affects you, but it affects everyone else. And that's just adding a great big dollop of pride on top of all your other sin. You need a savior, my friend. You need Jesus. You need a savior outside of yourself. At least the Israelites knew that they were thirsty. So many people in our world, ensnared in bitterness and unforgiveness, are just drinking from that tepid, fetid pool of Mara, and they don't even know what they're drinking. Maybe some of you, maybe some people in your life that you're praying for, maybe some people that God wants you to speak to this week, they don't even know that they're thirsty because they've been drinking bitter water for so long. And they're bitter, they're rude, and they're angry. And it's true in some way for all of us, to some degree or other, we're stuck at Mara and we're looking for Elim. This world will never satisfy. It's something to speak of the presence of God in our lives that there is a God and nothing, 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 no matter how successful you are in this world, can come close to. It struck me very much, and you probably know of him, but one of, the, one of the world's most successful athletes ever is an American football player called Tom Brady. probably heard of Tom Brady. And one, after one of his umpteenth Super Bowl victories, he's married to a Brazilian, or he was married to a Brazilian supermodel, and he said, I'm still wondering what else is out there. He had everything that this world could give. Everything. And he said, I'm wondering what else there is. What more is there? Everyone feels that if we're honest with ourselves. You're stuck in Mara and you're looking for Elim. Do you know that you're thirsty? Do you know where to go to have that thirst quench? Will you come? For the first time. For the millionth time. Will you come and drink this morning? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let... The one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.